0: Welcome everyone. I am Andrew Duckworth and I would like to thank you for joining us for our special series of BJJ podcasts on the COVID-19 pandemic. As we've already discussed in our first overview podcast with our Editor-in-Chief, Professor Farah Adad, the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic is being felt throughout the world and without doubt will have affected every facet of our professional and personal lives. Through these podcasts we hope to reflect on the main issues that have arisen as a consequence of the pandemic for us in orthopaedic and trauma surgery as well as uh, on our profession as a whole. This will include the impact of our day-to-day clinical practices, as well as the effects on research now and moving forward in the future. You'll be hearing hearing from uh, colleagues throughout the UK, as well as from across the globe, including hearing from surgeons working in some of the worst affected areas. We also feel it's an opportunity to discuss the future in terms of both the recovery phase following this and what we can anticipate moving forward. So today I have the pleasure of being joined by one of my editorial board colleagues and the editor-in-chief of BJ360, Ben Oliver from Nottingham who without doubt will be able to give us some great insight into the impact of the pandemic on the challenges we are facing each day, particularly in terms of trauma service delivery, the effects on training for our junior colleagues, and finally, what is in store for us moving forward. Many thanks for joining us today, Ben.
1: No problem at all. Always a pleasure, Andrew.
0: So, Ben, if we could start off by looking at trauma orthopedic ser- services in particular, if we could just discuss the consequences you've seen and the changes that have occurred, and particularly sort of focusing on our especially on interest in, in trauma.
1: Yeah so I mean it's a different world isn't it? The, the whole world changed about three weeks ago, um, not necessarily uh, on the day that we were told there was going to be a lockdown, um, but in the NHS uh, you know a few weeks before. Um, certainly in our institution uh, we started planning for this uh, within orthopaedics around about four or five weeks ago which I think has made us sort in of good stead actually. We, um, uh, we've always been one step ahead of what the hospitals asked us to do um, and uh, we've been able to uh, engage with our colleagues Um, as you probably know at the Queen's we're we're split site we have two hospitals Um, so the Queen's Medical Centre is essentially an acute hospital uh, where the trauma services are housed along with uh, Hans and Pete's because the children's hospital's there and um, at uh, the elective centre at Nottingham City Hospital uh, we have our elective colleagues. I think um, the biggest change, actually, the most positive change, is the way everybody's pulled together. So, as a as a group, about four weeks ago, we met. Uh, we've had some of the um, best attended uh, the directorate meetings that I've ever seen in the ten years I've been a consultant there, um, and we've all just become trauma and orthopedic surgeons rather than uh, splitting into into trauma and elective. And I think I think that's been that's been a key consequence and a key positive consequence um, of the um, of the problem. Uh, I guess is that. Uh, I've been very proud of how our department has, uh, has pulled together as a department. Mm. Um, in terms of what's happened to our services, um, which was essentially I think what you're getting at, um, the elective services essentially stopped. Um, we uh, made a decision as a trust uh, around about uh, three weeks ago that we would draw to a close all elective services um, and that actually includes cancer. Um, so our trust is a big cancer centre and all non urgent, how on earth you can describe cancer as non urgent, um, uh, services were stopped. Um, and we uh, expect the same time with trauma, we expect to be working on a skeleton trauma service. Um, I was involved quite heavily, uh, along with Dan Deakin, in, in the uh, rearranging of that of our trauma service. And um, what was felt by our trust and the representations that we made um, was that talking to colleagues uh, in Italy, and I have some collaborators in Italy, and also colleagues in um, other you know, countries who are sort of a little bit ahead of us in terms of uh, in terms of the COVID wave as it is, um, we felt that we would see likely um, a massive reduction in minor injuries, um, and that we would see initially a reduction in fragility fractures, and then as um, as the pandemic moves on and people start to lose their their social support, we're expecting to see an increase in in uh, frailty fractures, mm. uh, and of course in uh, trauma and orthopedics, we're also uh, fortunate to care for some elderly patients and and then that means that we are caring for patients who have um you know covid as, as every other every other institution is and probably uniquely in trauma orthopedics we're faced with acute operating on patients with covid Absolutely. um which obviously is, is the hip fracture population um so i think i think um I think that's the biggest change, change in working. Do you want me to run into specifics? or um... no, no, I think that's
0: uh, uh, good, but I think, I think actually I would, agree, I would echo that. I think that what we found here, as you know, we have a similar setup in terms of uh, trauma and uh, elective or arthroplasty type surgeons. And then actually the way that the collaborative and everybody's got together to move forward is, has been, it's, I think, one of the big positives that's come out of it, actually. I agree. In terms of, um, if we look at just talking about a bit about trauma management, the two things I would want to talk about was just be your how your trauma pathways have changed, both the major yeah. trauma and sort of day to day trauma, and then we could maybe talk about neck and femur fractures in particular.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So, um, so just talk about the major trauma pathway. Um, Nottingham is is slightly unusual insofar as one, it's a very busy service, so we manage about sixteen hundred uh, ISS sixteen plus uh, patients a year. Um, which makes us a, a huge MTC. And so we have a separate MTC service, whereas in a lot of places, uh, the MTC service is housed by a specific specialty. We have our own specialty of major trauma, which uh, includes consultants from, from various diff- different disciplines. So I, I act on that rotor, as do a couple of orthopaedic colleagues. Um, and we have intensivists, uh, plastic surgeon, vascular surgeons who run an acute 24 uh, seven consultant led trauma service. Um, so one of the one of the sort of differences I guess between having a larger service that's therefore better funded and has more people involved in a smaller service, we're able to offer consultant-led resuscitation twenty-four-seven. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of uh, the key advantages when we were planning for this is that we therefore have a consultant major trauma surgeon available twenty-four-seven. And so one of the first things that we've done is change our triage pathways. So mm-hmm. our triage pathways to reduce the to reduce the burden on the ambulance service and also. Uh, to try and offload the MTC, which is essentially the hospital last resort, whether that's for a respiratory patient or whether it's for a, um, whether it's for a cancer patient or whatever, was that we, rather than uh, doing our standard pathway, which is you know send them phone. So because we're a big big centre, we uh, have an open door policy for referrals. Um, so the phone call happens after the send hence send them phone. Um, we've gone to the phone and send. Um, so each patient that's transferred is run past the major trauma consultant prior to their transfer. Um, We anticipated a significant drop in trauma calls, um, and we've had a significant drop in trauma calls going from kind of 10 to 14 every 24 hours to to probably six or so every 24 hours. Mm -hmm. Um, We didn't anticipate as much of a drop as we've seen. Um, You know, if you look outside your window, you can see the roads are empty. And the few people who either have to go to work or are breaking the lockdown um, haven't got anybody to run into, as far as I can see, because no one else is on the road. So th- there's been a dramatic reduction in um, in uh, trauma calls, um, and that obviously wasn't something we anticipated. And perhaps going back and revisiting it again, um, we might have acted slightly differently in, in in that way. So that that's the major trauma service. Yeah. Um, the um, so the second part of your question was was well, the, the sort of day-to-day fracture management, particularly in terms of, I suppose, yeah, so,
0: fracture clinics and yeah, things
1: like that. Yeah, so day-to-day fracture management. Um, we did a couple of strategic things early on. Um, we uh, moved, um, and I, I managed this move, actually, of the, we moved our orthopedic trauma services out of fracture clinics, which we co-located with A&E, and we moved it to our independent treatment center, which is on site. Okay. Um, and we made that a COVID-free pathway, a COVID-symptom-free pathway. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we moved the minor injuries pathway from A&E and we took the minor injuries pathway with us, mm-hmm. which has essentially doubled the size of A&E because uh, the GPs, uh, and you know, an absolute credit to our local GPs, um, took the minor illness pathway. So our A&E doctors are no longer dealing with minor injuries or minor illness. Um, they are just dealing with um, major injuries supported by our on-call Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, major illness, i.e. COVID, uh, and they've got twice the space to do it. So we set up, um, we set up the Minor Injuries Pathway co-located with A&E. Um, we uh, were able to requisition a few nurse practitioners who we've upskilled, mm-hmm. um, and what we've done uh, with the assessment pathway is I've put all the pathways together. Um, so uh, instead of multiple trips uh, around the hospital, multiple x-rays, Uh, multiple follow-up appointments and and consultations the nurse practitioners uh, essentially act as triage service the patient comes in uh, they're seen by the nurse practitioner they are then triaged to one of um, eight different pathways so I think it's eight different pathways so we've got a um, we've got an EMP led pathway for things like uh, cuts and stuff uh, around the face removal of foreign bodies from the ear and that sort of stuff that that we don't do essentially Um, we've got a a limb injury pathway uh, where the patient is then triage directly to x-ray if it's a significant injury pathway then sees a consultant orthopedic surgeon immediately afterwards has their uh, their treatment instigated no requirement for virtual fracture clinic because the decisions are made there and then yeah. um, we've taken over the acute plastics pathway so for significant uh, plastics injuries uh, they see a plastic surgeon uh, right away um similar similar approach uh, we've done the same with a hand pathway so uh, hand injuries instead of um, you know, doing the typical thing of coming backwards and forwards many times they get a consultant that opinion right away um and we've done the same for the minor lacerations pathway and also for the um for the elective orthopedic problems because one of the difficulties with just turning off elective surgery is if you don't turn off elective surgery six weeks before you've still got large cohorts of patients going through coming back and needing their elective uh their elective follow-ups um and um we uh, felt we wanted to provide a reasonable uh, pathway for those patients. And in fact, because our elective orthopedic colleagues are acting as the consultant for the minor injuries pathway, they're able to deal with those things um, almost right away. Mm-hmm. We haven't yet had to turn that pathway on because we're still able to staff the city hospital a little. And so so the, um, the elective problems still be managed as they were before. But we expect within the next week or two to turn that pathway on. Yeah. Um, and to deal with things like infected joint replacements and stuff that may not be post-operative problems, but are acute orthopedic problems that need to be dealt with. Um, at the same time, we opened a ward at the treatment centre um, and we did two things uh, with regards to theatres. We decamped our ambulatory trauma pathway uh, to uh, the treatment centre. Um, and because anaesthetists are uh, in uh, hot demand at the moment, and we reckoned we could do a lot more with consultant-led uh um, local anaesthetics and or regional stuff um, we also start a with theatre without an anaesthetist right. um, so if you're on the hand pathway for example you will get your tendon repair done by the consultant hand surgeon that sees you an hour after they see you yeah. um, because that sort of thing can be done under regional Um so that's that's improved our efficiency. A um, couple of mistakes that we made. We we instituted a virtual fracture clinic, and you know we've always known in Nottingham that the Scots are entirely wrong about virtual fracture clinic. We've been we've been pretty clear throughout that you guys are you know not doing what you should do. Um, and so we we thought we'd follow the crowd and started a virtual fracture clinic um, about five four or five weeks ago. Um, that's morphed into a virtual triage service because the virtual fracture clinic uh, essentially by Taking control of the minor injuries pathway, the fracture has got no one in it, mm-hmm. right? Because um, essentially, all those decisions that take a little while—you have to phone the patient and what have you. Actually, you can eyeball the patient for two minutes as they come through in the plaster room. It takes two minutes, and you go: fibular ankle fracture, stable. Don't have a plaster, have a boot. Here's your information sheet. Don't need to come back. Yeah, that's yeah. it, and all done. All done at the same um, sitting. Yeah, the same thing. We do have a triage pathway which we're running like a. Minor injuries pathway for between eight pm and eight am when there's no consultant there but there's a registrar there, mm-hmm. um, and those patients are um, are triaged to uh, a number of specific pathways like the soft tissue shoulder pathway and so on. That again we've instigated since we started. We've done a huge amount of work on our pathways, yeah. and actually a lot of it we're going to keep yeah. because we think our patients are getting, without doubt, better care than they had prior to this. We can't keep it all because essentially. You know, in order to achieve that, our elective service is entirely shut down. Yeah. But we're hopeful we'll be able to, um, to continue to provide better care because one stop shop is much better.
0: Yeah, the the patients. So, uh, like you say, it's much better for the patients. What? Just moving on, though. Ben, what? What's your? How have you been managing your? I mean, like you say, I think in our specialty, it's unique in terms of the neck, of femur fracture patients. We, you know, that COVID positive patients, elderly patients, pretty unique in and in terms of our specialty that we still will t- be trying to operate on those. What's your sort of? how Have you dealt with it in in Nottingham and in, in relation to the sort of the, the guidelines that have been put out
1: there? So, um, so there's a couple of things in terms of operating. One of them is we started off, um and there was a bit of dissent amongst the group which is unusual we're pretty we're normally pretty um we're normally pretty uh pretty cohesive as a group of consultants and and some of us felt that we should be um we should be much more conservative because of the coming tidal wave of um of uh covid patients um i wasn't in that group as you'll probably tell by my facial expression um i felt that you know, there's a window for most Orthopedic surgery of around about two weeks for most orthopedic trauma surgery. And what we should do is be as efficient as we can, operate as much as possible, anticipating there'd be two or three weeks when we couldn't operate and some patients would suffer. Um, As a a group, we decided to go down the conservative option. We reversed that decision about seven days in um, and went back and operated on everything that we decided to treat conservatively because we're conservative group to start with. We don't operate on much that we see. Mm -hmm. um and we relearned some of the reasons why we operate on some of these things because we had lots of early slippages in plaster and so on and we also discovered with the ambulatory patients you know the thing that i guess we all know but don't um but don't necessarily uh need to be reminded we need to be reminded of in order to remember is that you know non-operative management is not not seeing the patient yeah you know and if you're trying to keep the patients out of hospital putting them in a plaster when they need to come back reviewed every week as opposed to putting two k wires across their distal radius fracture you're better with the k wires especially mm-hmm. if you do it under regional yeah you know they get it right away they get the manipulation their k wires and they blasted. they don't come back for five weeks um so that's the sort of ambulation stuff the necathema stuff we went through a similar similar sort of route although we never we never ended up non-opping any of them but we talked about what we might do if we had no access to theater and um, we've upskilled a little bit in terms of um reviewing traction teaching on nurses that sort of stuff you know things that things that they we haven't been doing for a long time yeah. um we we were sort of lucky although we perhaps thought we weren't lucky to start with which is the trust made the decision that one of the first covid cohort wards that we would have would be one of our orthopedic wards yeah. um which was how we managed to get a covid free ward at the treatment center um and actually that's worked out really, really well. And anybody who's listening to this and, you know, wards are expanding, then, then I would thoroughly recommend that, that that's what, that's a good method because mm-hmm. um, the reason they did it actually was because they saw that we had some, we had some clinicians, you know, the orthogeriatricians that weren't really, as far as the trust were concerned, were kind of redundant because they never really understood why you need two consultants to look after necofema an patients. And the only reason they do it is because of the, the uplift of tariff. Um... But what we found, of course, is we've got really good relationships with our geriatrician colleagues who have run one of our wards, one of what was our wards, but it's now COVID ward. We've got somewhere to put our patients who, you know, we had a patient just the other day came in with bilateral wrist fractures. You know, you can't leave that patient in plaster, especially as she was 75 on her own, and she had COVID. And mm-hmm. she was diagnosed with COVID on her admission. Um, so she needs somewhere to go postoperatively. She's not got a bad case of COVID, but nobody's going to let her into a, a, a clear ward. And so that was perfect. You know, she came in, she came into the, the COVID cohort ward, she had her her uh wrists sorted out, she was sent home same day, uh, and she's now a bit more able to care for herself than she would have been if she was um if she was just managing plasters. Um so yeah, so we, we're being we're being pretty aggressive about our next the patients. So one thing we're not allowed to do um because of how the trust uh views uh COVID as a as a uh as, an, as a, a risk factor is we're not allowed to operate in orthopaedic theatres. So we have COVID-specific theatres. Yeah. And again, we're, we're a big trust. We're, we're quite lucky. I don't know how many theatres we've got, but it's pushing 70, I think. Mm. Um, you know, so a lot of those theatres are going to be used to ventilate for patients if we end up with a, with a surge. Um, but we were quite, we're quite fortunate for to operate in cancer theatres and stuff that we wouldn't normally operate in. Yeah. Um, so there are, I think, three, two or three COVID theatres on the Queen's site, and there's two on the city side. Yeah. So you just list the patient in the COVID theatre and, and off you go. I think the idea of leaving somebody with a viral pneumonia in bed, and there's no different to anything else. You treat them as you would any other patient. You fix them so they can sit upright, and you get them going as quickly as you can.
0: Absolutely. No, I totally agree. That's really good overview. But I think the trauma service, and I think it's interesting. It's, I think certainly for a Mars centre, a lot of the, a lot of what you've done is is very simple, similar as well. So if we move on to a training, which I know you have a, a big interest in, and I think it's obviously a, 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 there's been a lot of changes for the trainees as well. And um, what do you feel as first of all, I suppose, what the major impact has been on them, and and how do you think you know how is this period going to be sort of, I suppose, recognised for for their training? So I know that's what's worrying a
1: lot of them uh, moving forward. Yeah. So, so I mean, there's a that's a, a complex question, but um, as f- first, speaking as program director, I guess um, you know the, the the truth is that we're all just doctors at the moment. Whether you're a consultant or whether you're a, whether you're an F two or whether you're a, whether you're a registrar, and you know, my trainees have been absolutely fantastic. They've all gone and done the necessary. Same as consultant colleagues have. You know, mm-hmm. everybody from the F one to the consultant is acting as a an SHR on the medical ward at times when it's your turn on the rotor. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we can recognize this period for training. I think it would be unfair on our trainees to do so. My personal view and, you know, the terms like training pause have been bandied around and so on. But I actually don't think we need to think about it in that way. We now have a competency-based curriculum. Mm. We're able to sign people off early or late, depending on how competent they are. Mm. Uh, and as such, you know, if somebody is in SDA and clearly is ready for sign off, then, then they should be signed off um if somebody is in you know st5 and was scheduled to do their hand surgical job and they've spent it on the respiratory wards then clearly they need to have that have that opportunity again so personally what i've done is i've paused my rotation um so you know as you know everybody stayed in their own their own slots um so the first that rotation has become a year rotation Mm. um and everything else has moved forwards um i've done uh We've done a few things we set up a whole rotation whatsapp group, which we didn't have which i'm on so i'm able to answer questions and what have you we always been very clear i don't want to be on the email list and stuff so the k- trainees feel they've got somewhere that they can yeah yeah complain about me complain about everybody else but equally there needs to be a forum where they could ask quick questions that's the first thing um second thing we've done is we've instituted evening teaching using zoom yeah. um so once a week they get teaching um and they love that as far as i can see uh, and i've again i've given some consultant colleagues have given some uh, people are happy to teach by Zoom at eight o'clock at night, which means most people are able to to make it. Um, it's been some of the best attended teaching I've given in our program because nobody's on call, nobody's doing this, nobody's doing that, and they're desperate to get a bit of orthopedics in. Yeah. Um, I think um, I think actually one of the things that people are learning, I think there are learning opportunities, and I think it's important to recognise that, you know, um, is that people are learning how to be adaptable. They're learning how to work in teams. Um, they're learning um, how to manage disasters and you know the, the truth is although we're facing a national disaster most of us at some point in our career were involved in the majax and the principles are pretty much the same yeah. you know and and um it's um you know it's about i think it's 18 and uh, no, there's something longer than that it's about 25 years since there was the Cape Verde air disaster in our own in our own patch you know, there was an air disaster not so far from where you work. There's crane crashes and so on up and down the country. And actually learning how to work in a hospital that's overwhelmed is a, is an important skill. And learning how to be good to each other and how to put aside differences with other specialties is an important skill. And, you know, one of the things I'm quite proud of is all of my trainees have done a fantastic job of that. I've had no complaints about uh, about them. Uh, and in fact, I've only had one inquiry out of a group of 40 as to whether or not they really had to go and be respiratory doctors and could I do anything about it. Everybody else has just been fantastic.
0: No, I, I would certainly echo that for our trainees here. And I think everybody's just uh, really like you to say mucked in and like, we're all say, like you said, we're all doctors and we've, we've likewise found that the zoom teaching sessions have been really, really productive and people like you say, attend it and they really enjoy it. If we move on then in terms of before we get, go on to the future and, and discuss that in terms of research, obviously you have a strong research interest, Ben, what, what sort of happened from your point of view in terms of, you know, obviously the main, like you just said, we're all doctors now. The main focus is on clinical work, which it should be. What has happened with, in terms of your research, in terms of the
1: trials, um, you know, yeah. have been paused and things like that? So, so most trials are paused, although that's down to the, that's down to the, the CI. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've, um, I've paused um, most of my randomised trials. I've got two still running at the moment. Mm-hmm. The important thing to remember is that when you pause a trial, though, I mean, it's like pausing elective surgery. You, you pause renew recruitment, but you've still got people going through that cycle. You still need to be able to send out their follow-up questionnaires. You still need to have a trial office open so that maybe there's has any problems, can phone up. You still need to be able to deal with sues and that sort of stuff that, that comes in. Um, so I have kept one day a week academic time. I'm normally 50-50. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also run our division, so I've got 120-odd staff, academic staff, not, not clinical staff, working from home, so I need to provide them with some support. Yeah. Um, and I think we're just trying to eat things out from that perspective, you know, the NIHR is going to offer no cost extensions and so on. I think it's important to remember that if you have staff who are non-clinical, um, you know, there are other things that they can do. But many of them, you know, may choose to furlough so their training, their funding doesn't run out. And that's something that, that's important um, because the funders won't pay extra salary because they just don't have the money. Um, the the second second part is you know there's a huge opportunity and people should be thinking about how they can study what's going on. Um, we started a big tissue study. We we're recruiting on starting on Monday. We managed to get all that through in in week ten days. So we're going to be looking at frailty patients and um, and how they do and um, and doing some some genomics and so on. Um, so there are some opportunities there. Um, I think um, I think it's important um, to keep things ticking over and i think it's important to keep touching base with your staff who are at home or have not much to do yeah. um you know, most hospitals have research associates most hospitals now have uh you know research nurses most hospitals have uh, some form of audit department and all of these people are one very frightened mm-hmm. and two many of them are being redeployed to clinical areas in which they've never worked yeah um, and, and i think that's another side to it is that there's, the, there's the sort of there's the support side to those staff who are being redeployed because essentially uh, those of us that are academic, you know, like yourself, Andrew. You, you you're their line manager. You're the person they'll turn to, and you're not necessarily the, it's not top of your mind is what's happening to my research nurse because you're worried about what's happening to your doctors. And I think that's that's something just to remember.
0: No, yeah, that's a very good point, but I totally agree. I think it, so. If we move move on finally, I think sort of all those topics we've talked about, and it's very difficult, you know, you can't you don't have a crystal ball. But what do you anticipate? the future holds for us in terms of our specialty training research sort of immediately, but also how, how do you think we're going to sort of come out uh,
1: the end of this when hopefully things calm down? So I think, um, I mean, so, so from, a, from a trauma perspective, you know, I think, um, I think things will just turn back on, won't they? Yeah. Um, I think, I think one of the things that we haven't touched on, which I think is a, is a hugely important thing to, to remember is we need to be planning now, for a second wave of neglected older patients. You know, you saw those heartbreaking stories uh, in Spain, which I hope would never happen here, of all the nursing home residents starving to death. Yeah. You know, now one, one thing that definitely will happen is isolated older people who rely on social services support. Many of them will fall over because their carer won't turn up and they'll try and get themselves out of bed. Um, we know from just icy weather that there's about a two week delay on that, so we should start seeing that fairly shortly. Yeah. Um, you know, older people will venture out to get food you know and and those sorts of things and so we're going to start seeing an increase and in fact we have started seeing that we normally run four day trauma theatres a day at the Queen's um, plus an evening theatre list and we're down to two and initially we had not much to do and now we're starting to outstrip that capacity with frailty Um, and and I suspect next week things are going to be pretty bad and I suspect the week after we will be having to prioritize things um, and really struggling And and I think that's something people need to bear in mind in you know, in, in many hospitals, I think talking to colleagues and, and be interested to hear what it's like in the Royal, you know, things aren't as bad on the ground as as is expected. You know, we had we had a bit more time to plan. I think NHS Central, although there's been, you know, terrible stories on Twitter which are clearly untrue of, you know, inappropriate PP you know, PP equipment being unavailable, that's just not true. What's been available is what we're told we need. And people may or may not agree that's what they want. But but the NHS Central has done, I think, a really good job with the supply chain, with making sure people are, are where they need to be and get what they need. What it hasn't done is it hasn't thought about that second wave of ortho trauma. And I think we just need to, as, an, as a profession, take that forwards. Mm. I think in terms of, in terms of our trainees uh, and our colleagues, you know, we're going to have a slightly de-skilled workforce. We're going, to have, uh, we're going to have to think very carefully about people who have done things like being out on OOP-E, come back for three months and now or we are and now have nothing to do surgically we're going yeah. to have to think about part-time trainees um, who you know keep their skills up but uh, now are not able to do any surgery and maybe weren't didn't have as much under their belt over the last couple of years mm-hmm. um, and and i think we're going to also have to think about our patients because there's going to be a huge burden of pathology people don't stop getting arthritis they don't stop. Um, they don't stop getting cuff tears. They don't stop getting ACL injuries. And we're going to be swapped. Yeah. Um, you know, and the first question every patient I say needs surgery uh, asks me now, which they never used to, is, you know, uh, can I have it? Can I have it on up? Yeah. You know, every patient is thinking, do I need to be in hospital? Yeah. Um, and consequently, there'll be lots of patients at home who just haven't come. Yeah. Um, and I think we need to think about ramping up our services and how we do that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think, like you say, I think the, the time is to prepare now for all that. I totally agree. Well, but I think that's all we have time for. But thank you again so much for your really interesting comments and insights today. We really do appreciate it. And uh, we send our best wishes to you and your colleagues and their families uh, in these difficult times. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Thanks so much, Andrew. Bye. And finally, as always, we'd also like to uh, acknowledge and thank our many colleagues around the UK and across the world for their ongoing tireless efforts in the delivery of care to our patients during this pandemic. We at The Journal thank you and we will always endeavour to support you in all the ways we can. Stay safe and thanks for listening.